Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time that we can share together. If you're just joining us for the first time, my name is Charles and I'm the pastor of Hickory Rock Baptist Church here in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And it is my prayer that our time spent together in God's word will help you in your walk with Christ. Won't you join me for a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our text today from Acts chapter seven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. And Father, I pray that during this time, you will give us open ears and open hearts and that we will humbly sit under the authority of your word and that we will take your word, Lord, and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, I pray that you will empower us through your Holy Spirit to be the people that you have called us and redeemed us to be and that you will help us to follow you more humbly, more faithfully, more joyfully, and more obediently. And Father, we make this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. So today, loved ones, we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Last week, we looked at the bookends of the narrative with Stephen. We saw how Stephen went on trial before the Sanhedrin, and we saw what the result of that trial was, how Stephen was stoned and how he became the first Christian martyr. Today, we're going to backtrack, and we're going to look at what happened in between him going on trial before the Sanhedrin and him being martyred. We're going to look at his address in Acts chapter 7. And as a means of setting that up, I want to remind you of a quote that you may have heard before, one that I'm very fond of. The philosopher George Santayana once famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And even if you don't know who George Santayana is, I'm sure at one time or another, you may have heard some sort of riff on that quote. In fact, I used to use that quote every single year. I would lead off each new history class of each new semester by telling my students that quote and telling them that if they didn't remember the past while they were with me the first go-round, then they would be condemned to repeat the past and learn it again from me the next semester when they were forced to retake my class. And a few students had to learn this the hard way. Now, let me be frank. I am no philosopher. And I do not mean to nitpick Mr. Santayana. But I don't believe that simply remembering the past is enough to avoid repeating it. Simply remembering the past is not the same as learning from the past. And this is true for us on every level. It's true for us as individuals, as a community, as a church, as a nation. We can remember our past. We can remember the events, both the good and the bad. We can remember the mistakes we've made. We can remember the victories that we've won. But if we don't learn from those things, if we don't learn how we got into those situations, if we don't learn the necessary lessons from those mistakes, then loved ones, we run the risk of falling into those same pitfalls again and again and again. Yes, remembering the past is a crucial first step, but learning from the past is what's essential. And we see this come to be proven true in Acts chapter 7. Here in this amazing passage, we find Stephen's sermon. This is the longest sermon that's recounted for us in Acts. And it's the sermon that Stephen gives as he is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And in this epic sermon, Stephen points out to the Sanhedrin that they might remember their Jewish history but that they certainly have never learned anything from it. 
And in this text today, we're going to look at several things. We're going to see Stephen's words regarding the temple. We're going to see Stephen's words regarding Moses. And lastly, we're going to see how Stephen's words are still incredibly relevant for us today. And as we go through this, we should quickly come to realize this much. We should see that if we don't learn from the mistakes of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, then we run the risk of making the same mistakes that they made. Now, loved ones, this is a, an incredibly long passage, and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to hit all of it. So today, I want us to read the end of Stephen's address, and then we're going to go back and handle everything as an overview. So if you would, turn your attention to Acts chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 51. We're going to read through verse 53, and then we're going to go back and fill in the rest from there. So Acts 7 verse 51 says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did you did all you do also which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute they even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one those betrayers and murderers you have now become you received the law under the direction of angels and yet you have not kept it now as I said, I made reference to a moment ago, in order to wrestle with this text today, we need to handle it in one fell swoop. And in order to do that, we're going to have to look at it from a bird's eye view, from 30,000 feet, so to speak. And thankfully, Stephen helps us a lot with that because his entire sermon here in Acts chapter 7 is indeed an overview of the Old Testament. But in order for us to understand everything that Stephen is going to say and for us to understand how we got to the place that we just read a moment ago, we have to remind ourselves of the charges Stephen was facing at this moment. We learned last week that Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin and that he was being accused of two different things. Number one, he was being accused of blaspheming Moses and God. And secondly, he was being accused of preaching that Jesus would destroy the temple and that he would destroy the customs of Moses. And by remembering these things, we can begin to understand why Stephen takes the approach that he takes in this sermon. But we need to understand that if you go back and you were to read this from verse 1 all the way through, you would see that Stephen begins addressing the Sanhedrin by talking about the second charge against him, be the charge regarding the temple and what Jesus might do with it. And Stephen begins with this to remind the Sanhedrin of something incredibly important. He wants to remind them that God's presence has never been confined to one single place. And to prove this, Stephen goes back to the very beginning of Jewish history. He goes back to that moment in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. And Stephen reminds the Jewish council here in verses 2 through 8 that Abram was in Mesopotamia when God called him. Abram was nowhere near the promised land, nowhere near Jerusalem when God singled him out for his purposes. And by starting at this point, Stephen is trying to get his fellow Jews to see that maybe they have been misunderstanding the purpose of the temple. 
Stephen wants the council to understand that God's presence has always been everywhere and that God's presence has always been with the people that he has chosen for himself. And yes, the temple is the physical symbol. It's the physical reminder of God's presence. And yes, it is the place where people can draw near to God. The temple by no means has ever contained or confined God's presence. And Stephen points this out by alluding to other places in Old Testament history as well. He reminds us that God was with Joseph in Egypt, orchestrating the salvation of Joseph's family, the children of Israel. And not only that, Stephen points to another important encounter with God in the Old Testament. He reminds us when God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that that took place in the wilderness of Sinai, yet another location that is nowhere near the promised land. All of this is to help us see that God's presence is everywhere. It's not contained to one physical place. And in verses 33 and 34 of this chapter, Stephen points out something from Exodus chapter 3 that beautifully illustrates this point. Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin that when God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, he said the following. God said to Moses, take off your sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. Now, loved ones, there's two things that we need to note here. First, we need to notice that God told Moses that he has seen the oppression of his people in Egypt. He has heard their groanings and their cryings, and now he has indeed come to free them. But the way Stephen is presenting this to us, it makes us understand that God didn't just see Israel's oppression from on high. It wasn't as though their cries were finally reaching up to him in the vast reaches of heaven. God witnessed and saw this oppression. He heard these cries because he was present with his people. He witnessed these things firsthand, so to speak. And we understand that God could witness this firsthand because as Stephen is trying to remind us, God's presence is always with his people. But even more important than that is this. It's what God says to Moses just before that. When he told Moses to take his sandals off because the place where he was standing is holy ground. Now let's ask ourselves the obvious question. Let's remi remember something here. Where was Moses standing? Well, he was standing in, son of some, in front of some bush in the middle of the wilderness, a place that was absolutely ununique. There was nothing special about it, nothing holy about it, except for one thing. It was holy because God was there meeting Moses, speaking directly to him. Stephen is pointing out to us that the ground there was holy because God made it holy. And this is the point that Stephen is making to the Sanhedrin. And this is how it relates to the temple. A place is only holy because God's presence makes it holy. 
God chooses to make a place holy by putting his presence there. But even then, one single place cannot contain all of God's presence or all of God's holiness. And this is what Stephen is referring to. If you were to look at verse 48, where he says there, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my foot stool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? Did you catch that, loved ones? Do you see what the Lord is saying there? Even though God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle and then later commanded Solomon to build a temple, God reminds Israel that if heaven and earth are not enough to contain his presence and to contain his holiness, then how could any one house hope to do so? And through all of this, everything Stephen is saying about the, San, about the temple to the Sanhedrin is to help them see that maybe they have been idolizing the temple. Stephen is reminding the Sanhedrin that the temple is not holy in and of itself. It is holy because God makes it so. But just as the tabernacle pointed to the temple, the temple itself points to something even greater than itself. And it pointed to the fact that, yes, God's presence is always with his people, but Stephen wants these individuals to realize that such a temple of brick and mortar is now no longer necessary because God's presence is now with his people in a new way. Since God has come to this earth and taken on flesh in the form of Jesus, and he came to dwell with us, to save us, to die for us, to redeem us, Stephen is wanting everybody to understand that now the new people of God are now indeed the new temples of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit that once resided in the temple now resides in us. And what Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin is this. What does it matter? What happens to this brick-and-mortar temple? Because now the followers of Jesus are the true temples. And wherever the followers of Jesus are, there is the presence of God. And so that handles one of the charges for us. We've seen how Stephen addresses this issue of the temple but now we need to look at how he addresses the charges against him that he was blaspheming Moses. And the gist of Stephen's argument on this point to the Sanhedrin is this. He says, when it comes to disrespecting Moses, y'all are ones to talk. And Stephen wants everyone listening to him to understand that the scriptures make it very clear that Moses was one of many leaders that God sent to Israel that Israel turned on and rejected. The first such figure was Joseph. And we're told that Joseph's brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, they hated their brother Joseph so much that they did what? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then fast forward a few hundred years, when Israel is in slavery in Egypt, Moses is then born to lead them out of that bondage. But beginning in verse 23, if you were to go back and look there in 723, 
Stephen begins recounting to us that famous scene from early on in Moses' life where he goes out to see the plight of his people and he comes across an, Egypt, an Egyptian taskmaster mercilessly beating an Israelite slave. And what does Moses do in that situation? He kills the Egyptian. But the very next day, when Moses comes out and he sees two Israelites fighting with each other and he tries to settle this dispute between them, how do the Israelites then treat him? If you remember the story, you'll know that the Israelites turn to Moses and say the following. They say, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Who made you a judge over us? Stephen summarizes this beautifully in verse 25 when he said, Moses assumed that his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And as Stephen goes on to point out through the rest of his sermon, this is but the first of many times that the Israelites rejected Moses and his leadership, and that they reject the deliverance that God is bringing to them through Moses. Time and time again, we remember the story. The Israelites grumble against Moses. They even try to revolt against him, to replace him, so that they can go back to Egypt and become slaves once more. But as he is explaining this, Stephen is making something very clear. He's letting us all know that when Israel rejects and rebels against Moses, that they are actually rejecting and rebelling against God. Stephen points to that fateful scene in the wilderness where the people approached Aaron and asked him to make a new God for them. And Aaron then makes a golden calf for the people to worship. And in case we have forgotten this scene takes place after God gave them the Ten Commandments, after the covenant ceremony where Israel is covered in the blood of the covenant and they agree to be the uh, people of God. Even then, after that, even after witnessing the plagues in Egypt, even after witnessing and experiencing the miraculous exodus, after witnessing and receiving water from the rock and manna and quail, after receiving the law and agreeing to be God's people, after all of that, after seeing and experiencing the salvation and the deliverance of God, these people still chose to reject God. But what's even more tragic than that, and what Stephen reminds us of beginning in verse 43 when he quotes from the prophet Amos, even more tragic than that is this. This rejection of God didn't end in the wilderness. It continued through the conquest of the promised land, it continued after the building of the temple. It continued despite the prophet's pleas to turn back to God. It continued until the destruction of the temple and the exile into Babylon. The tragic tale of the Old Testament is this. Israel had every opportunity to choose obedience, and yet again and again they chose disobedience. And as Stephen is pointing out to the Sanhedrin, this rebellion and rejection of God 
continued even after the return from Babylon and was continuing until this very moment when he was speaking to them. And Stephen knows that this rebellion is continuing because this same Moses that the Sanhedrin claims to revere and esteem, even though their ancestors rejected him, this same Moses preached that a prophet greater than him would arise in Israel and that all Israel must listen to this greater prophet. And as Stephen sees it, Israel's rejection of Jesus proves that they are still rejecting Moses and that they are still rejecting God. So Stephen's response to the Sanhedrin is this. Who are you to say I'm guilty of blasphemy when you've never learned from your own history? And he reminds them, the Sanhedrin, this current generation that he is now calling out, that they too are a stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's the same thing God and Moses said about their ancestors. And just as their ancestors had murdered the prophets, this current generation murdered Jesus, who was the righteous one that the prophets foretold and preached about. And even though Israel received the law of God under the direction of angels, everything that they say and do proves how little they have ever sought to keep it. We cannot read Stephen's sermon here and not remember the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 23 where he said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the prophets' blood. But you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sin." And loved ones, this is exactly the point that Stephen is making. That the actions here of the Sanhedrin and the way that they have misled Israel, this is simply the continuation of the rebellion against God that their forefathers began. And until they realize this, and until they learn from their own history, and until they realize who their rejected and crucified Messiah is, nothing will ever change. And once we digest all of this and we sit with it, we see how powerful Stephen's message is. And then we realize a couple of things. First, we realize why the Sanhedrin and everyone present that day got so angry, why they were out for blood, why they ended up killing Stephen. And we realize that they did this because he was calling them out for their sin. And people so deeply enslaved to sin hate having their sins pointed out to them. But we also realize that the Sanhedrin's reaction to this sermon proves that everything Stephen was saying was true. That this current generation, Stephen's generation of Israelites, was just as stiff-necked and just as rebellious as those in the olden days. But loved ones, we also should realize this, 
But Stephen's words are incredibly relevant for us today. They matter for us as well. And we must learn from the mistakes of these individuals, from the mistakes of the Sanhedrin, from the mistakes of the ancient Israelites as well, so that we do not perpetuate them ourselves. And you might be wondering, what in the world does this crash course in Israelite history mean for us today? What does it have to do with us? And the answer is, loved ones, everything. It has everything to do with us. Because all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, we are all infected by the same thing. That is sin. And we all stand at the same crossroads with the same decision, the same choice to make. We can live in obedient submission to a good and holy God, or we can continue to disobey and rebel against that same holy God. And loved ones, if we claim Christ without seeking to obey Christ, without seeking to be like Christ, without seeking to be holy as he is holy, then loved ones, we are no better than those Israelites to whom Stephen preached this sermon. You see, the fundamental failure of theirs, the essence of their failure was this. They claimed God and Moses, but they did not give a rip about what God said to them through Moses. They did not give a rip about being holy as God is holy. They thought that they had God in a gilded box in Jerusalem. And as long as they paid him lip service here and there, they could do as they pleased. They thought if they checked this box here and that this box there, they thought if they showed up to this service or if they gave this amount of money or if they memorized enough verses, then God would owe them something. But loved ones, God is a debtor to no one. God is not in the habit of owing anyone anything. And Jesus had these very individuals in mind, the Sanhedrin, when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If these individuals, with all of their righteousness, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? Well, thankfully, Jesus answered that question for us. He answers it, in Matthew chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, they will be saved. Those who listen, those who submit, those who obey, those who realize their desperate need for God's mercy and grace, those who demonstrate their belief and submission by a commitment to obedience and Christ-likeness and holiness. They will be saved. Those who trust only in Christ and obediently live in submission to him, they will be saved. We must remember that the ancient Israelites rebelled against God when they chose to serve every other God that they could find. And the Israelites of Stephen's day continued that rebellion when they made a God out of their tradition and the law and the temple. And we must learn from the past, loved ones, 
And we must realize the mistakes that we as humans, that we are capable of making. And we must ask ourselves this, what are we choosing to serve today instead of Christ? Is our profession of faith and belief in Christ, is that supported by evidence of obedience to Christ? Or are we giving our obedience and our allegiance to other things? Forrest Gump once famously said that you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes, where they're going and where they've been. Well, loved ones, Christ told us that you can tell a lot about a person by the fruit that they produce. Namely, you can tell, do they belong to Christ or do they not belong to Christ? For how could a person ever hope to bear spiritual fruit if their lives are not firmly rooted in Christ and in obedience to him? So loved ones, if we are to learn from the history that we have recounted today, we must commit to obedience and to bearing fruit for Christ, to bearing fruit that proves we belong to him. So the question is, loved ones, where is our fruit? Where is the evidence of our obedience? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. Father, we thank you for the powerful words of Stephen here that were uttered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that serve still to convict sinners today. Father, I pray that you will open our ears, open our hearts, remove the scales from our eyes. Help us to learn from the mistakes of those who rebelled against you in the past. And Father, move in our hearts, inspire us, push us towards obedience. And may we choose to obediently and faithfully follow you each and every day. And Father, may we produce fruit that glorifies you. And may we produce fruit that helps others to draw near to you and to obey you and to submit to you as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.